I used to think it was impressive when I saw people posting pictures from a day hike up their difficult-looking local mountain. But my expert today makes those hikes look trivial and those mountains look like bunny slopes. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Ethan Golokli. Ethan is one of those guys you'd see with the funny backpacks doing way better than you on any given trail you decide to hike. But he's not just making you look bad on day trails. He's out here hiking places like the John Muir Trail, which takes a month to complete if you can even manage that long. He explains the not-so-secret secrets of an experienced backpacker along with all of the most common beginner mistakes that I know I would certainly make myself. If you want a fantastic trek experience without all the discomfort, I also highly recommend The Trail, a novel. It's been an incredible success in online sales, Amazon rankings, and at major writing events. The audiobook is incredibly well done, and that's coming from someone who's very picky about his audio. This episode is also brought to you by Magic Mind. That's our lovely new sponsor, but more on that later. Let's get on that trail. Welcome to the show, Ethan Gologli. Thank you, Colton. I, I appreciate you having me here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit for the audience? Well, uh, I'm a retired professor. I'm a avid backpacker, and I'm the author of the book The Trail, a novel about hiking the John Muir Trail and and two men's relationships and how they transform through nature while while they're out in the wilderness. Yeah, and this is not just like oh, we're going on a day hike. This is quite an extended hike. Yeah, well, the the John Muir Trail runs about 211 miles long from Yosemite Valley up to the summit of Mount Whitney, which is the tallest peak in the continental United States. So it's quite a journey. And it took me my first hike when I was 50. Uh, It took me 28 days to do it. And that's what I have it take these two gentlemen in in my story the the story is very loosely based on my own experiences on trail yeah and that seems like quite an intense experience what is it that got you started into hiking in the first place well growing up i i liked nature i liked wilderness but i you know i did not like hiking if my parents had took us on a even a short one mile walk you know as a kid i would have protested but when I moved out to California, I went with a friend to Yosemite Valley, and I was just blown away. The majesty of the peaks, the waterfalls, the scale of the whole thing, the the amazing granite rock. I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. And we took sort of a misguided hike. Uh, we looked at the map. We saw that upper Yosemite Falls, which is 3,000 feet above the valley floor, was only three miles. And we didn't think anything about the elevation change. We just thought, oh, yeah, a three-mile walk, that'll be nice. And it almost killed us. We made it halfway up. We ran out of water. 
we had to ask hikers for water. You know, we got down, but we, we'd learned our lesson about, okay, elevation's important too. But I was smitten. I mean, even after that experience, I was looking out at Half Dome and I said, I want to climb that. And I saw people backpacking and I'd never done it. Well, I'd done it once as a kid, but I'd, I'd never really gone on an extended trip. And I said, I want to do that. And the next year I, I came back and, you know, I climbed Half Dome and I, I did about a 10 day backpacking trip. I was, <laughs> I had all the wrong gear and made many mistakes, but I loved it. And I, I've been hooked since. Yeah. And it seems like there's a lot of mistakes that can go wrong in there, but it, you know, if somebody wanted to get started, do you usually recommend, you know, starting with a couple of hours for an easy local trip or is there, you know, some benefits to just throwing yourself into, you know, the deep end? Well, so like, uh, the anti-hero Gil in my book, he suffers through all the things I suffered through and more. So, you know, if you read that, you can see what not to do. He really makes a lot of classic beginner mistakes. And I would tell anybody who wants to get into backpacking, don't, un unless you have an experienced friend or guide who's going to take you, don't start big. Don't, don't start on a 10-day trip where every mistake is going to be magnified. Just, just take an easy weekend trip, maybe four or five, six miles, depending on your condition, into a established camp with water and just see what works and what doesn't and and refine that over time because you're going to find you're carrying inevitably too much on your first trip and there'll be stuff you don't use and things you wish you had brought and over time that gets refined to a very sleek very cut down pack I've been doing some long distance, well, the John Muir Trail is long, right? 211 miles. But I've been working towards doing the Pacific Crest Trail, which is 2,600 miles. And last summer, I did about 400 on, on the PCT. And to do that kind of hiking really requires refining your equipment, learning what the absolute minimum you need is to be happy and healthy, but not to have a huge load on your back. So it, it takes experimentation. It, it doesn't come in a, in a single hike. No way. Yeah. I, uh, unfortunately and admittedly, I did a day hike with some friends and I thought, well, you know, there's no way these guys are going to bring enough water. I'll got to bring water for all of us. And I loaded a backpack down with about a <laughs> case of water. And that was a horrific mistake. <laughs> Yeah, two pounds a liter. I mean, so my my son made that mistake when we were, I, I went back to rehike the John Muir Trail just before the book came out to check all the details and stuff. And I brought my son and he was paranoid about water, just like you. And he brought, a, he's young though, but he had a tremendously heavy backpack and water is really an issue. You know, the first part of the Pacific Crest Trail goes through desert and there is no water for, for long stretches. And if you run out, it's a disaster. I mean, you're out in what could get up to a hundred, hundred plus degree heat out there if you're not careful. And yet you're trying to minimize what you're carrying. And so, you know, we learned, we learned tricks about hiking at night and, and 
so forth. But you still have to carry a lot of water. For some of these stretches, we needed five liters, which is 10 pounds of water. And that's it's a ridiculous amount of weight to load up in, in a backpack, especially these little backpacks, these ultralight packs, you're, you're trying not to have weight in. So, I mean, I, I had, I had scrapes on, on my back from where the belt was eaten into me because my pack really wasn't good enough to carry that much extra water weight. And I, I hadn't planned that well. I, I learned a lot from doing desert hiking, which I, I had very little experience with before. I mean, it seems like there's a very broad range but if we were to say you and me left today to go to an outdoor store, what are the necessities we should be picking up to get me started in hiking? A great, great question, Colton. First, I would probably hit up um, an REI or an Eastern Mountain Sports or one of these big stores that that's well known for backpacking. And... I would try on equipment. I wouldn't necessarily buy equipment from those stores because some of the best equipment, some of the best stuff comes from small, you know, closet online internet companies. Uh, for example, my my favorite tent is the the Durston Exmit, which is made in Canada by, you know, by by Dan Durston. And you've got to go online to buy that. There's no, it, it's not available in any store. But it takes time to to learn that and to learn what the best gear is. And and sometimes it's good to join these online groups and and find that out. So where the big stores will help you is just in fitting up equipment, knowing what you like, trying things on. And if you're just doing some some short trips, their their equipment is very affordable, very practical. So, you know, I would take you to an REI to begin with just, just to get everything going. But there might be a couple of items I, I send you online to buy. The big items you need are a good backpack, and you don't want the backpack to weigh too much. Sometimes you go in to one of these big stores and they sell you a six pound backpack that, you know, you you could haul an elephant in that thing, but you don't need that. The goal is always to be getting lighter. So you want to get something like maybe an Osprey, a, you know, a two or three pound backpack that doesn't have so much room that it invites you to put the kitchen sink in there. So first and foremost, a good solid backpack that that'll last you a number of years. And then a sleeping bag. You need something that's going to keep you warm and comfortable when it gets cold. And that again is very much a personal preference. And again, there's some terrific online companies. There are some quilts out there now that that are fantastic. It's you really have to kind of crawl into them and try them on in the store and Think about what temperature rating you want. And it's it's always a compromise between how cold is it going to get versus how heavy is the bag going to be. Uh, a ground pad, you need something between you and the ground to keep you comfortable. And nowadays, I like these inflatable pads. And, you know, for example, Thermarest, uh, Big Agnes, Nemo, they, they all make these things that you blow up. They're like an air mattress, but they're much, much thinner and much, much more more portable. Um, so those those are kind of, you know, the big few. You need a tent, of course. And again, 
you want it to be as light as possible, but you want it to be sturdy and, you know, warm and able to withstand the elements. And then you start adding other things like your kitchen. You know, you want a, a stove and some cooking gear and some food. And if you're going into the mountains, the Sierra anyway, you, you need some kind of bear canister or protection from, you know, for your food from the bears. But it also depends where you're going. So beyond sort of the big three in the kitchen, you're now looking at where are you going? What kind of trip are you planning? And just how, you know, how, how, where on the sort of the, the spectrum between hardcore through hiking on, on a long distance trail and glamping, are you going to be, you know, how comfortable are you going to be and how much are you able to carry? So those are all variables that'll depend on, on your comfort level and, and where, where you're going. Yeah, certainly. And there's, you know, a great argument to be made here that like, you're going to spend some money. And if you get very serious into this, you're definitely going to spend more money at a later date. Yeah, the 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 joke is the lighter you get, the lighter your wallet gets, you know, it's <laughs> uh, some of this gear is crazy expensive. I mean, remember, I was talking about tents, and you can get yourself a two person one pound tent, they exist. But you're going to drop seven, eight hundred dollars on that versus you can go into Walmart or Big Five and buy a, a cheaper tent that that's just fine for a typical weekend trip for 50 bucks. So I would tell anyone getting into backpacking, use what you've got at home first, borrow stuff from your uncle or your brother or your cousin or your friend who's already done this. Try it out before you invest because you can you can invest a ton of money in in gear and and i think that's true for any sport i i think anything you get into if you really get into it becomes expensive of course so when we've got all this stuff kind of put together and i set my backpack on a scale how much is it supposed to weigh for a, a relative beginner great great question uh so if you were a through hiker, if you were going out on the Pacific Crest Trail and you had optimized everything without food, your pack should be about 10 pounds with everything but food, maybe 12. You know, if you've got camera gear and stuff, maybe 15, but somewhere in that kind of 10 pound range. As an absolute beginner, when I first went into Yosemite on that first backpacking trip with food, I was carrying 75 pounds on my back. And that was ridiculous. That was crazy. When I did my first JMT at 50, I carried a 50-pound backpack with the food. That was nuts. I mean, that, that was crazy. But it's not unusual for a beginner to overpack like I did. And I, I had had a number of years of experience before going and doing my first through hike. And because I had been doing weekend hikes, I didn't think much about carrying 40, 50 pounds on my back. But I learned very quickly that on an extended hike, that's way too much. And now even on a weekend hike, I won't take that kind of weight. So I would say if you as a beginner without food can get your pack into the 15 to 20 pound range, maybe 22 pounds, 
you've done a great job. That's that's fantastic. That you know, and that's very achievable at the big stores without spending a fortune. Going from 20 something pounds down to 10, that'll cost you because now you've got to get specialized equipment, special fabrics. That's where the money comes. Yeah. And I mean, there's something to be said about like, oh, it's only 20 pounds. Oh, it's only 30 <laughs> pounds. Oh, I can, I can pick that up and carry it. No problem. Like, yes. Can you pick it up and carry it uphill all day? No problem. <laughs> yeah. So it depends if you're 20, 30 years old, you're in good shape, 20, 30 pounds, no big deal. When I was in my 20s, as I said, I'd carry 40, 45 pounds regularly. No, no problem. But as you get older or you try to put on more miles, you know, back then I was doing eight, 10 mile days on the PCT. You try to put on 15 mile days or more. Uh, it's the more weight you have, the slower you go, the, the more difficult it is, particularly day after day. So there's something for age. There's something, uh, even age, I wouldn't say there were 70 year old guys passing me up on trail all the time, but I'd say fitness. There's something for fitness that you can carry more, but the less you carry, the further and faster you can go. And that's that's important, maybe not faster, but further and just being able to do more. I, I think it's important if you get into these long distance hikes. If you're just doing weekend trips, a 20 pound pack plus food, no big deal. Perfectly fine. Most people can can handle that. The, the problem is, as you start going further and further, it's the food and the water that adds weight. Uh, a day's food well picked will be one and a half pounds a day. So if you're going on a 10 day hike, that's an additional 15 pounds in your pack, plus, you know, that day's water, whatever that is. So that's where that extra weight comes from. And a 10 pound base weight without food or water, uh, if you're going on a 10 day trip will become 30 pounds when you add the food and, and the water to it. So you know, if everything is in your pack and it's under, you know, it's under 30 pounds, uh, you've, you've done just fine. Well, and alongside that, you know, the very common weight mistake, you had kind of brought up clothing and that seems like it could be a very easy mistake to make is you're like, oh, I went and I bought new shoes and I'm wearing warm cotton and I'm, you know, like very easy, simple things that you just don't think about. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, the old adage, cotton kills, it, it gets sweaty and wet and then it never dries. So cotton, you, you if you can do it, you want synthetics or like a merino wool, wool or something like this. Um, but clothing is a very important thing. Fortunately, there's a ton of clothing out there. So you, you can find really, really good, lightweight, uh, athletic clothing almost anywhere now. So that's that's not that difficult. You want to have a good all-purpose jacket, you know, for when it gets cold. And there are some terrific companies out there for that. Uh, the one that jumps to mind, I'd say there are two that jump to mind. I, I like outdoor research and I particularly like Mont Bell. They, they're, they're actually, they sound French, but they're a Japanese company out of uh, the Midwest, out of Colorado, I believe. And they make fantastically light, functional 
jackets and and pants and other equipment. They're expensive though. Uh, outdoor research, a little more affordable. REI, Eastern Mountain Sports, they they all have good stuff. Uh, but one of the mistakes people make with clothes is not bringing the wrong clothes so much as bringing too many clothes. A pair of clothing, you know, pants, shirt, underwear, socks, that whole thing, that might be two, two and a half pounds. It's really, really heavy. So when you do these long hikes, I mean, it's going to sound awful, but you typically only wear the clothes on your back. You typically are not carrying an extra set of clothing in your backpack. And when you get to town, the way you can tell the through hikers is they're all standing around in their rain gear because their their clothes are in the wash. So, you know, it's kind of funny, but we identify each other because we're wearing our rain pants and our rain jacket and nothing, nothing else. Uh, again, getting pack weight down. But if you're going for a weekend, sure, you, you can pack an extra change of clothes, but don't don't go put five pairs of clothes in, in into your pack because that's going to be very, very heavy. Yeah, expect to be a little on the ripe side just because, you know, you don't want to have to be changing every eight hours as you're doing your, well, this is my evening attire. <laughs> exactly. Well, and this this is the thing that puts a lot of people off of backpacking is, I mean, unless you're glamping it, unless you're going to some established site, there's no shower, there's no toilet. So these things, you're going to be sweaty and you can rinse off in the stream. Some people will bring uh, an extra, typically you'll bring a pair of long johns to sleep in so that you're not sleeping in dirty, smelly, sweaty clothes, but you're, you're not going to have a chance to take a warm shower and clean up anyway. So you... You don't really need that that nice change of clothes for camp. Well, and it seems like, you know, all of this is a great physical activity. It's excellent workout, keeps you very healthy. It also, you know, tends to bring you new sites, for lack of a better term, literally off the beaten trail sometimes. You know, like there's a, a life experience that goes along with this that you're just not going to get anywhere else. Yes, yes. And that, that brings me back to the theme of the book again, which is transformation through nature. I, I like to say that outdoor recreation is really recreation, you know, hyphenate the word recreation and you get recreation. You really have time spent inward. It, it's, there's nothing to do out there in a sense. You don't have all the distractions of modern society with our cell phones and our, you know, our internet, our busyness. You're really outside in nature, walking, and it, it it's very contemplative. When all that noise, all that chatter of what do I have to do at work tomorrow? What do I have? You know, when all that settles down and your mind becomes peaceful. And this this may take a day, it may take an hour. It takes time to put down all that chatter in, in the background of our minds. But once we do, backpacking becomes meditative. And you really go inward. You can sort through problems. You can get new insights into your life. I, I find it to be one of the most refreshing things you can do. I, I like to say that 
Time out is really time in. It's inward time for yourself to reflect on things or just not to reflect on things and, and find that peace and calm and comfort that comes from just doing what we as human beings were meant to do, just walking in nature. It's it's amazing. It's, it's very hard to convey all the benefits of that. And that's, that's something that my book, I, I try to develop in the book through the anti-hero who goes in not wanting the backpack at all, having he's totally out of shape. You know, he doesn't want to be there. But as he relaxes into nature, as he starts to do this, over time, he transforms and he begins to see all the benefits of taking time out in nature and how that changes us. And it's it's a transformational experience that I, I think all of your listeners could benefit from. And you don't need to go on the Pacific Crest Trail or the John Muir Trail to get this. Just taking two or three days and going into the wilderness really slows you down and changes you in amazingly positive ways. It, it, it's a terrific experience. And we all need some help with that slowdown, getting out of our own head. It's no secret I've got all kinds of trouble focusing on the day-to-day, -day, but I had these two people, Anne and Bibi, reach out to the show and hook me up with this green drink called Magic Mind. They promised it'd help, and I was admittedly skeptical, because nothing helps. Besides that, it's a green liquid shot, with matcha as the top ingredient, which makes me think of tea, which I've never been a big fan of. But it turns out that this is the same stuff that Joe Rogan and the Kardashians are drinking, and holy cow was I wrong. These bottles are tiny, actually taste great, and boosted me through the roof without the need for caffeine. Usually I live on a slow caffeine drip throughout the day, but on this I felt as if any caffeine was multiplied like crazy and I dialed back really quick. It was honestly such a boost that I thought it might just be something inside me that had changed for the way better. But when I finished the stuff they sent me, I could feel the crawling speed that my body had returned to without it. So, they've got me. I'm all in on this. And, they have a wild deal for my audience. If you buy Magic Mind this week by going to magicmind.com dumb, and or just using the code DUMB20 at checkout, you'll get 56% off one of their big one-month bundle deals. That's way too much power to be giving us, so make them regret it by the whole stock. Beyond that steal for the first 10 days of the sponsor deal, it'll give you 20% off forever. FOREVER. On any purchases. So could you wait, sleep on the decision, and still get a great deal? Yes. But that discount is nearly tripled if you just stop hesitating on every decision and simply go buy it now. Magicmind.com slash dumb, D-U-M-B, or use the code DUMB20. That's D-U-M-B-2-0 at checkout. But Gil certainly goes through the ringer in a lot of senses on this and starts out very much that new guy. And I think there is something I love really early on where he's like, you know, he's in all new gear. He's got a little bit heavy pack. He's unprepared mentally, physically. But, you know, he's walking behind the other character in your book, Sid, 
and he's looking at you know stuff in his pack and swinging on the back of it and he just says huh i guess i'll find out what that's for later uh the shovel yes yeah, yeah I, I i don't want to give that away yeah it's it's a beautiful like just you know the the absolute unpreparedness that he comes into it with just be like oh, i guess i'll figure it out later right right and and his his meals are a disaster and he's got the wrong sleeping bag and oh my god (laughs) you know poor poor gil but everyone i think everyone who starts backpacking goes through what gil did which is we all make mistakes of one kind or another and you know in retrospect we laugh at them and I, I can't tell you how many people have written to me after reading the book and saying, oh, my God, I made all the same mistakes Gil did. I, you know, I thought that was me. And it's a very common experience. Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, what you're talking about there is like getting out there, you have a chance to embrace all of the nothing that is going on, just really meditative, like you said. That, and that's that, a beautiful phrase, all of the nothing all of the nothing and eventually that leads back to you know everything as you're either like feeling out your your body straining for the first time in a while or you're you know deep diving into you know what's going on in your head all of those things are coming from you know a a very straightforward otherwise pre-planned experience yes yes and it's the things you don't plan for that are the most sublime you know just You're walking along and you come to a cliff and you look out over the landscape. Just those moments stop you and and amaze you in ways that you'd never expect. Just just looking out and saying, wow, you know, just seeing all that hills and mountains and space. And there's something incredible about it that you you know you're going to be there. But until you're there, you don't know. And I imagine there's some some highs and lows you don't necessarily see coming. And one of those might be like the things in your pack that are, you know, your food or whatever experience. Because like I said, I, I viciously overpacked water mm-hmm. on my trip. And I'm like, okay, there's only two other things in here because I know we're only gone for, you know, however long it's supposed to be like a five mile hike up. And I'm like, okay, I'll just pack granola bars and licorice. <laughs> and you know, at the top of this, I'm so wiped out, exhausted, sweaty. And I'm like, man, licorice is amazing. I never had a, a real chance to stop and think about it. But, you know, a little bit of peanut butter in my granola bar and some licorice is a, a fantastic meal to have at the top of this mountain. Yes, you you really appreciate food and you appreciate it in a different way. A piece of, like you say, a piece of licorice that you might just chew on and forget about suddenly becomes something you savor and just really taste the flavors on because you're you're hungry, you're tired, you're craving food and now food becomes something else. It it's it's interesting. Backpackers talk about this how a simple meal, you know, when you come out of the woods for example with your what they call hiker hunger and you go in and you eat a simple meal, just how fantastic that food tastes and your your licorice which you would otherwise just you know eat a piece and forget about suddenly becomes this thing that you savor and you taste and you know all the flavors of uh gill when he gets for the first time stops at a 
little place to resupply. He has a salad and he can't believe how great the salad tastes because he hasn't had veggies and, and fruit for days. And, and suddenly just, just eating lettuce is, is amazing to him. It, it's, it's absolutely a real experience is how food tastes. And if you brought the wrong food, which again, unfortunately Gil has uh bad food, if you have to eat that for days it is horrible. I, I met some guys on the high Sierra trail one year with my son and they had brought all power bars and, and they had thought, okay, power bars are light. They've got lots of calories. We're just going to pack power bars for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it's all they had. And they were dying. They hated power bars. They were on their third day and, you know, they wanted anything else, any other flavor than the, these chewy synthetic bars. And they, they traded us for a bunch of food because they, they were just going nuts. So the wrong food can, can be a disaster too, but it, it's amazing how much you appreciate food out there. Like you were saying. Yeah. It really seems like, you know, it could heighten the highs with all of the, the workout, the endorphins, the amount of time you've been away from quality meals but it also could very much lower those lows where you're like man these pains i never knew were kicking in this food i've brought is absolutely terrible i cannot stand what is happening right now i wait for any break in this, yep. this horror show <laughs> well that that's an ongoing joke in the book with gil eating this the synthetic meals i mean I, I still laugh when I read that first chapter over and and his first taste of his uh, backcountry buffet, which is based on the old the old meals of the eighties, the, these dehydrated meals you could buy, um, and and you can still buy stuff like that. You go into REI or whatever, and there's these prepackaged just add water meals, and some of them are fantastic. Some of them have really really become good, and some of them are are just awful and you know a huge beginner mistake is just buying them by name and not tasting them not trying them we we got out in the wilderness on a practice hike with my son and he had a package of food that he was really looking forward to he opened it up took a bite and he was just like oh my god this is horrible and he he couldn't even finish it you know it was just so synthetically awful so yeah, it goes absolutely both ways. Well, and there's a good lesson in the book about that, where you're like, hey, listen to the people at the store. If they tell you outright, do not do this. Yeah, Gil, Gil completely ignores the, the woman in the store who's like, you might want to take those home and try them. You know? Yeah, yeah, but but he's that way. I mean, he's, you know, a lot. He. He's your typical young guy who doesn't listen to anybody and, and who's really kind of wasting his life when the book starts. Yeah. And and you get to go through that experience with him and share some of the cringy moments where you're like, oh, man, I've definitely been this guy before. Like, that's right. really unfortunate when I see it spotlighted how bad that is. Yeah. Well, I, th I think as as men, we we all go through our our teenage, our tween to 20s period of being clueless about the world and and about etiquette and all those things. And, and you know, I drew on quite a bit of my, my own 
childhood into in, into that character. But then it's contrasted nicely with Sid, who's older and wiser and, you know, becomes a kind of a, a mentor to Gil. So it, it gets its balance. But Sid, Sid has his own issues, as as I'm sure you know. Yeah, of course. And it it gives the other side of that contrast very well because, you know, no spoilers, it's very early in the book, you learn, but he is extremely sick. So you're like, yes. this is this is his last hike, you know, yes. potentially. Like this is the very end and not, you know, his his young guy origin story. Yeah, for for listeners, Sid is dying of uh, of cancer, and his dream has been to do the John Muir Trail. And he's got a little window in in his illness where he feels that he's up to it. But you know, there is some question, and I I don't want to spoil anything, but there is some question as to whether Sid is going to make this hike or not. And he he struggles. He also struggles with his own mortality sid very much is afraid of death and that comes out as the book goes forward so in in some ways gill actually helps sid overcome sid's own problems even though at the beginning sid seems the experienced solid person you you begin to see the the cracks in sid's armor over time but the the whole story is told through gill's eyes yeah Certainly. And he knows, you know, Sid knows going into this that he already, you know, went into remission once he went through chemo once. And he said, you know, I, I couldn't have the energy to read. Like, do you have any idea what that's like? And yep. I know they told me if I go back in for treatment, like I'm staying in the hospital, I'm not, I'm not leaving. And so he kind of makes that decision. Like I've already done that once. I'm not, I'm not going back. I'm going to do this, this thing I want to do for me because it might be the last time ever but it's it's unfair to gill because he doesn't he doesn't level with gill at the beginning about exactly how sick he is and so gill doesn't know what a burden he's undertaking at the beginning and that comes out later too i i don't know if you've gotten to that part but there there is a point towards the middle of the book where where gill actually confronts sid about this and they 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 come to they they come to an understanding and and eventually they build camaraderie so you know at the beginning they're really at odds with each other they're very different people but over time they forge an incredibly deep relationship with each other and so you know the book's also about this relationships between between men and it's it's another whole whole theme through the book and and the people they meet they you know as as i'm sure you've you've noticed now they meet some incredible secondary characters as they go along which really show the diversity of people out there backpacking and hiking long distance trails like this and why they do it and the, these people they meet are all based on people I've met out in the wilderness. Yeah, I mean, a, a fantastic plethora of characters, if you will. And, you know, the same to real life where you're like, you know, if me and you go on a hike, we may not share a ton in common, but we're also going to meet people out there that don't share anything in common with either of us, you know, yep. other than the the willingness to get out on the trail itself. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I've I've had people talk to me and say, 
do you know my friend X? You know, your character Permi is exactly like my buddy X. I, I'm just wondering if, and I'm like, no, I don't know them. But it's amazing how many people know somebody just like these these different people they're meeting. So it, it it's it's interesting how many times I've been asked that. Well, have you ever been asked that and go, wait, I actually do know that person? <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Maybe one of these days. But, you know, it has me thinking about, you know, obviously there are negative things on the trail, like we said. Is there, and hopefully none of them are quite so bad as, you know, Gil and uh, Sid's situation. It's not life or death kind of bad. But are there any of those things that, given the chance, you would remove from the experience because i know for me like oh man i know it's part of the experience but if i could remove bugs from my trip man i would love to remove bugs well okay so i i agree with you if you could not encounter mosquitoes that would be wonderful um and i don't know if you've gotten to it but there's a scene where they struggle with the mosquitoes that I wrote um, I wrote while I was on the PCT in Oregon and the mosquitoes were just horrendous and I was stuck in my tent and I'm like, oh my God, this has to be part of a chapter. This this experience I was having with the, the mosquitoes. So sure, I, I would love to have a bug-free hike. And most of the time you can get that if you choose the right season. So if you go typically to the mountains in late June, early July, there are going to be bugs. That's when it's at its worst. But if you go late August or early, you know, May, June, depending on the snow level, you, you're not going to see them. So you can pick your times. Permethrin, which is something you can spray your clothing with now, you let it dry into your clothing, has just been a boon to hikers. You know, the in the past, you'd put deed on or something like this, and it smelled awful and it didn't work that well. But being able to treat your clothes with permethrin really cuts down on the bugs, which I, I think most hikers will agree. But I, I'd say those those things are secondary. The one thing I would get rid of are the, it's an unfortunate topic, but you know, there's no bathroom out there. And I can't tell you how many times I've run into toilet paper and, and unburied poop in the wilderness. You know, you go off to a nice campsite, you set up your tent, and right there next to the tent, you, you find somebody's leftovers. And it's like, why didn't this person take the time to properly bury this and why did they do it right next to the campsite or next to a river or something so i i think that's the one thing that's really in the control of the hikers that i would love to see gone and i it it just drives me nuts when you're walking down a pristine trail and right next to the trail there's a little wad of toilet paper i just it's inexcusable and and it's something that could be changed yeah i mean that is easily within our our ability to control as you know somebody who is participating in the hike because unfortunately like i live in oregon and mosquitoes are a 
problem for an entire season for me. <laughs> oh yeah. The Oregon mosquitoes are something else. They uh, hiking through Oregon was, was an experience. Well, and there's, there's two very different kinds of people. The kind of person who says like, Oh, they don't really bother me. And then me, which is like, Oh, I can't get rid of them. Yep. Yep. No, they, they drove me crazy. I ended up buying a bodysuit you know, one of these net bodysuits and and hats for when I was hiking through Oregon. And other people passed me and they were envious. They were like, where did you get that? The, the problem with Oregon mosquitoes compared to the Sierra, the Sierra mosquitoes are kind of polite. They come out in the morning, they come out at night, they leave you alone during the day. And if you can find a campsite with a bit of a breeze, they don't bother you at all because they can't fly against the wind. But hiking in Oregon, they're there 24-7 all day long, and they're constantly buzzing. So you've got that droning of, you know, as you're hiking and, you know, you go to eat and you've got to wear a suit and then unzip the mouth and take a few bites and rezip it. So that drove me crazy. That that stretch of sort of the middle of Oregon with those those mosquitoes was was pretty pretty difficult for me. It it bothered me a lot. So I'm I'm with you, Colton. I I do not like hiking with bugs. Yeah, yeah. They, these ones have certainly mutated or evolved to become extra irritating. Well, they call them the national bird, right? <laughs> yeah. So or the when state you're... bird. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Uh... That's not one of your favorite experiences, but when you think about, you know, all the places you have been and you have seen and hiked, has there been like a standout favorite for you? Yeah, there've been, there've been a few. I, I, all right. So on the Muir Trail, Evolution Valley is just so picturesque, so beautiful. I, I mean, it, it's jaw-droppingly amazing. And not just the scenery, but the colors, the way when, you know, night, when the sun sets, you get this alpine glows of reds and oranges and purples on the mountains and on the lakes. That area is just so, so incredible. I, I would say, though, my favorite place that I've ever been is Tehipiti Valley which is extremely, extremely remote. It's not a place for a beginner to go. It's very difficult to get in there. It takes a few days to get in and a few days to get out. But there's a dome there that I think even Muir said was, was second to half dome in Yosemite. And it, it's the site of uh, an old Indian Native American encampment was down there and gold miners had gone down there, but it's, it's very remote. The bridge into Tehipiti Valley washed out years ago. So you've got to ford the middle fork of the, the Kings river, which is very difficult to get across to the trail and down into there. But if you can get there, it's just so incredible. I, I, you know, I, I don't know what to say about it other than it it's it's an amazing place if you can get there but it's it's quite a challenge to get in and out and maybe that's part of the attraction is just how how remote and difficult it is to to visit that place it's some sometimes the the places furthest off trail are are the most special 
Yeah. How much they make you work for it to really earn that experience. Yeah. Like your licorice. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so if money and time wasn't prohibitive to your, your experience, is there somewhere, I mean, in the world that you would want to go that's on your bucket list of dream places? Well, so I, as I said earlier, I'm retired. I'm doing writing now. Uh, money's always an issue. I mean, I'm not, hey, I'm not wealthy, but backpacking, fortunately, is not an expensive sport once you have all your equipment. So you're not staying in hotels. Uh, no matter where you go, probably for backpacking, the biggest expenses are the airplane flight and the food. If you're going to be off hiking in the wilderness, you've just eliminated the cost of a hotel and fancy restaurants and, and all that stuff. So you're really free to go anywhere, which is amazing. Um, there are places I want to see. I was supposed to go hike what's called the GR10. In Europe, they name all their trails GR with a number. I think it means Grand Route or, or something like that. But the GR10 goes across the Pyrenees Mountains, which are just gorgeous mountains. I, I visited them once years ago. And you can hike from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mediterranean Sea across these mountains. It's about a 500-mile hike. And I was going to go there and do this in 2020, but of course, everything got shut down. So that's on my list of things to do. The Pacific Crest Trail, I, I still want to complete, and I'm probably going to do more of that this year too. Um, but I, I don't have any exotic, exotic place that I'm I'm looking to go and hike. I'm sure, you know, there's no lack of them. You you could go down to Patagonia, I suppose, or do some crazy trans-Antarctic thing or climb some Himalayan peaks. But that that doesn't call to me as much as some of this 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 more rustic wilderness, this this simpler stuff. I mean, just exploring the Sierra, you could spend a lifetime doing that. So I I'm I'm very content particularly with with the Sierra in my backyard. So I there, there's just so much to see out there. And again, a lot to see in there. Remember, one of the goals of, of backpacking is not necessarily looking outward, but looking inward. And and people forget that. It's not, I mean, yes, these these mountains and scenery and places are fantastic. But part of it is just the experience of of the meditative experience of being in nature. Absolutely. Like you said, that that time to embrace your inside, that recreation period. Time out is really time in. Well, and that's, you know, it's a very interesting thing to just say, like, the site might be lovely. The experience could be wonderful. But, you know, what I'm looking for is is not necessarily found in any GPS coordinate. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people get into that mistake of chasing after things, particularly material items, where they get into this cycle of, if I only had, I would be happy. Or if I could go to this place and see the Taj Mahal or whatever it is, that's my goal. And I think they miss 
that life is really a spiritual journey and that the greatest peaks we climb are within ourselves. And when you sort of turn that mindset inside out, then you really find peace and, and happiness in the simple things. And, and so there is no grand peak that I'm, I'm trying to climb so much as just the experience of, of being. And, and I think backpacking helps you to slow down and, and see that. That's, that's a lot of what I'm trying to get across in my book is, you know, Gill's embracement his slow understanding of that. And, and it's what Sid is teaching him because Sid, of course, comes from that experience. He he knows why he wants to backpack. So I, I think, you know, backpacking more than anything else is, is a sort of spiritual endeavor, a sort of inward looking, as you and I have said, recreation of one's spirit. Where you're like, I could do this wherever and it's, you know, it's not necessarily the goal to see the new places and the new sites, but it did for some reason when you said Arctic hike, I started thinking, cause you had said you've been in desert hikes. That was kind of the new experience. Have you been in like a full on snow environment? Yes. <laughs> yes. When, um, it's cold. <laughs> I, I've, I've done so-called snow camping where you put a full-on backpack on, you put on cross-country skis, you go out into the wilderness in the dead of winter, you set up a tent. Uh, it's got to be a special four-season tent, which has two complete, it's like a tent within a tent so that it maintains its warmth. You need an incredibly heavy set of equipment because you need one of these, you know, minus 20 bags or, you know, they're, they're very heavy, but they're, they're thick. Um, and you camp out in the snow and uh, I, I'm kind of past those days. I, I love the experience of snow camping. There's a silence to the woods in winter that is just amazing. You, you don't know what silence is till you're out deep in the wilderness in winter and the only thing you hear are are like these these of snow falling off trees but otherwise it it's dead quiet it's cool it's beautiful but for me the problem with snow camping is the sun sets early maybe five six o'clock it gets really cold and so what do you do from five six o'clock on you go into your tent and hide you know and you're in there until 9 a.m when the sun breaks over the mountains and so you spend a tremendous amount of time in this little cocoon and yeah you can read and all that but it's different from the woods in the summer where you'd sit around outside you talk to your friends you look at the stars in the winter it's just so cold at night that you spend quite a bit of time in inside. And I, I I'm past the age where I, I, I enjoy that, but I, I've done some hut to hut last, last winter. I, I strapped on cross country skis and went with a group to a, a, a hut, which was, I should say was a great trip, except that I was using ancient equipment and, 
wasn't uh <laughs> it, it it fell apart on me and that was that was another kind of disaster story but the experience of being in the hut with the group out in the wilderness that was beautiful so you know i i can see myself doing winter hut to hut trips but winter snow camping uh i i think i'm past that now it's interesting because if you're talking you know the difference between a summer solstice kind of hike and a winter is literally half the amount of sunlight in any given yes. day but also yes. one of those things that you know it made me think of when i'm thinking of this much snow is that even if you do have sunlight there has to be an immense glare from all that pure white driven snow just like shooting back into your eyes sometimes if the sun is out it it can be and the temperature can be wild um if the sun's out and you're cross country skiing you get hot and so you may strip down to just a single layer and get all sweaty and then at night, you better change those clothes out again, more pack weight, because you don't want cold, wet, sweaty clothes on your back when it gets cold. So you're you're carrying more gear to accommodate those changes. I when I was on this hut trip, uh, we had the opposite condition. We had deep powder, and and we had a storm. We actually skied into and visibility was negligible and and that brings up another huge issue i i would not tell anyone to go into the snow unless you are an experienced navigator because you've lost all your references in the snow even with paper maps and compass you may not be able to see the peaks you you know gps is good if you've got signal if you've got battery but you better know how to navigate when you're out there in the snow because everything looks different and there's no trail to follow typically there may be blazes but you you better have some good cross country skills when you go when you go snow camping so it's it, it is not for a beginner and please if you're listening to this don't go oh yeah i'm going to go off into the snow and try this that it's you can get in a lot of trouble yeah, you're not exactly going to Google Maps your way out of the, the middle of the mountains. No, and, and Google Maps, uh, there was just in the news a, a case of a group that barely survived. They got rescued. They were following a non-existent trail on Google Maps and got themselves into a lot of trouble. So I, you know, I've seen a lot of people try to navigate with phones and, and apps and I, I met one woman hike in the JMT. She was in tears. She had dropped her phone. It was broken. She didn't know where she was. She was 50 feet away from the trail and the trails well marked. The JMT is well marked, but she didn't know where she was because she had been navigating by phone and didn't have paper maps, had no idea of the bigger terrain and had just gotten herself in trouble. And so I, I always tell people, look, it's okay to use your phone out there. It's okay to use an app, but you should know where you are. You should have a map with you in case the phone dies. You should know where the safe exits are. You shouldn't be completely reliable on this one piece of technology. That's that's a huge mistake. So I I see that a lot too. You know, people nowadays 
I, I think there are some people who couldn't get home from the corner grocery store if their GPS died. You know, they they just don't know where they are physically. Yeah, certainly. And that's one of those, you know, the experience can exacerbate the lows, especially if you are unprepared for the amount of of stress of not having your technology with you. Yeah, I see that too. And and particularly with young folks. I know with my son, when we were out in the wilderness, he really had a hard time being without a signal. And and there came a point where somebody had said, yeah, I was up on this ridge and I had a signal and we'd hiked all day. And he took his phone and, and ran up the ridge to try to get a signal. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, it's, it's an addiction. But, you know, to be fair to my son, he was in his transition from high school to college and he was waiting on, you know, emails from the school and all this. So he he did have a reason to check email, but you could see the tension of, I have no signal. And it was very hard for him. Whereas for me, I just relish those times when I am not interrupted, when I'm kind of free of my device and, and I, you know, you go through a transition where you want to check your phone and then you realize, oh, I don't have a signal. And and that takes a day or so of, you know, this, we have this unconscious urge to reach for our phone. But when that passes, like, as I said, the noise in your head, there's an incredible going inward that I think you and I know from, say, growing up and taking a long drive where there was no in-car entertainment. And so you'd look out the window and meditate that this generation, I, I think for the most part, doesn't have that experience. And, and there's almost a fear of disconnecting that. I, I think it's very beneficial to experience what it's like to be disconnected from that sort of superficial external world and reconnect to nature and our internal world. There certainly is. And is that, you know, that feeling of trying to to get people to realize like there is something to be had out here. Is that part of what drove you to write your novel? I mean, you already have so much, you, know, you could just commit time to, to hiking. Like what was the driving factor there? Yes, I, I definitely, definitely. One of the motivations was to share why I like backpacking with people and and get them to see it. And and that's that's why I picked Gil as my protagonist, or sometimes I call him my proagonist, because he's not the most likable <laughs> character, is I wanted people to to, to feel to, to emphasize with Gil to feel the same way, to say, yeah, I would never go do that. I'm not prepared for that. And so they they can, even if they don't like Gil, at least they can understand where he's coming from about being uncomfortable in the wilderness. A lot of people said, why didn't you write the story from Sid's perspective? But from Gil's perspective, sort of the the average person can can sympathize with Gil and go, yeah, that's how I would feel out there. And then slowly, slowly, I have Gil change and I show them the benefit, which I don't think you can just get in a second. You have to be slowly kind of get into this thing and, and see it. So that I, I felt it would take an entire book to really show 
why someone would want to do this. And and I hope I, I hope I've inspired some people to get out there and 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 try it or at least to understand it, you know, through through this story. Certainly. And I think Gil is a great example character to kind of say, like, can you see yourself in this? Because you know, Gil is like, if I wasn't personally invited, if it wasn't because he asked for me, like I wouldn't have gone. And then as he's starting to get into this trip, he's like, how can I make an excuse to stop doing this? Like, how, <laughs> yeah. how early can I bail on this entire experience? Right. And and I think that would run through most people's minds being dragged into a trip like the John Muir Trail is. How do I get out of here? You know, how do I get off of here? And what excuse can I make? But once you get past that, it it's amazing. And that that's why you you brought up what would you do for a beginner for a first trip? I would never take a beginner on the JMT. I, I would take them on a much easier hike that they can be successful on and enjoy and really get out in nature without all that suffering there there's going to be enough suffering just in sleeping on the ground and not having a shower for most people yeah you're like i don't need you to to experience it for 28 days <laughs> right exactly exactly although that said there is something really really special and transformational about being disconnected for that long and i i can't I can't put into words, I mean, not without writing a book, what that experience is like. But for people who've done this, who've hiked the JMT, or who've done long distance through hiking, they all have the same things to say. They all say, yes, this was really transformational. And yes, it's hard to put to encapsulate the whole experience in words. It, it, it's like any big experience, you, you need to go through it yourself to really understand it. Yeah. So if, if I've captured some of that in this book, I've, I've really succeeded. No, I, I think you certainly have. And you, you said it's going to take a book just for that experience. So you kind of give people a taste so that they go and experience that for themselves. But it makes me think, you know, with this break-in period, right? Like you stop reaching for your phone, you start embracing the hike, you do you know, all the things you want to do and you reach this, this different level of existing, right. That's not so reliant on what we do in our day to day here. Do you also have the opposite when you come back to normal civilization where you have to like break yourself back into the average thing? Yes. Yes. It's very common. Uh, the Pacific Crest trail hikers call it post trail depression. There's very much a feeling of wanting to go back to the trail and the simplicity of life and the the companionship of the people and the mutual understanding of purpose that is lost in everyday living um just having to work and and live in our quote unquote modern society is is jarring after a long trip and you can see gill you haven't gotten to the end of the book but you'll see gill goes through a little bit of that at the end um but yeah no post post trail depression is real and for me after the jmt i think the way i solved that problem was writing this book i i really was able to put myself back on trail through my writing and and that kind of 
got me through that that phase. But yes, it's it's very very real, and people definitely go through this. It's it's a real thing, certainly. And and you've done an incredible job. The book seems to have found resounding success. Anytime you can look at an Amazon page and see that it's in the top single digit anything of a book category, like that's an incredible success. Thank thank you, Colton. I I yeah I, I've I've been both surprised and and just really happy with how how well this book has been doing it's it's won a number of awards it was a next gen indie finalist and yeah it's been in the number one slot in you know hiking and outdoors books on amazon for for quite a while now so and 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 just for people listening you can get it at your local bookstore you can get it at libraries you you don't have to go on Amazon to get it, uh, but it is available in Kindle. It is on audible.com. Um, and if, if you go into a bookstore and they don't have it, just tell them it's distributed by Ingram books. It's a major book distributor and they, they can order it for you. So I, I, I just hope listeners will support their, their local stores. Absolutely. And I highly recommend picking this up. I'm generally fairly picky. And I wonder if that's, you know, working in an audio medium, but like you said, you know, I've been listening to the audiobook, and the audiobook is exceedingly well done. Like I am very happy listening to that. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. We interviewed uh, when, when we were looking for a narrator for this book, we must've interviewed 50 and I don't exaggerate 50 different narrators and Jake, Jake Hunsbusher, who narrated it, is fantastic because he's able to do the accents and voices of all these characters and the emotions there. I hadn't realized it when we went into production for the audiobook, just how many characters are in this book. But there's something like 50 different side characters that they encounter and you know, when you're doing an audiobook, you have to give the narrator notes. What is this person like? What is their voice like? How do you envision them? And when I started doing this, I realized, oh my God, I've got how many characters I've got to do this for? It it blew me away. But he was able to capture the feeling and the voices of all those people in a way. I, I mean, when I first heard the audiobook, because you have to listen to it a few times to catch mistakes and 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 so forth when it goes into production it was like i was i was you know i i'd edited this book what 13 times but when i was listening to the audiobook it was like i was new to the book he drew me into it in a way that i even though i had written it 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 was like going into it fresh so i i really loved the audio production of of the trail it is fantastic. Like I said, I highly recommend it. And if anyone does pick this up online, it's fine, but make sure you leave reviews. That is a, a huge thing that helps promote your authors. And then they can be found in more places like your local bookstores. So I always highly recommend people, you know, if you buy this online, leave a review online. Those are big. Please, please. Authors always appreciate that. I, I really appreciate that, Colton. Yes, and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being here. I've appreciated this immensely. Uh, thank you for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. What do you think, having heard all that? 
I don't really want to spend all day exercising or all week camping, but I do really want that introspective experience that Ethan talks about. I also want to take a moment to thank the sponsor who paid for this episode. It's not often that I take on paid ad reads, but this company really lined up with my values and didn't give me any form of script. They just said, talk about the product in your voice, which is a total gamble, knowing the way that I ramble and the dumb things I say constantly. Check that out through the link in the show notes if you think it's at all interesting. The more people who even just look at it, the more likely they are to keep paying the show. We're also just over halfway through November, and the rankings have barely changed at all. Number one, the United States, led by Iowa, Oregon, and New York. Number two, Australia, with New South Wales killing it. Number three, the United Kingdom, with England still out front. Number four, Canada, with British Columbia now beating Ontario. And number five, Germany, still led by Bayern, which no one has told me I'm pronouncing wrong. That's it for this week. Have a great week, a great weekend, and I'll see you all back here for the next episode. Until the next episode, please do all the things that help the show grow, like rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing. Remember, you can reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media pages if you want to reach me personally. But most importantly, stay dumb.